Welcome to After Hours, an interview podcast series from Lady. I am Laura McClaus Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. After taking an unexpected break of a few weeks, I am back with an interview with the fashion journalist Mary Lou Luther. I always seek out interview subjects who have the kind of long and fascinating careers that I think we all desire, and Mary Lou is no different. As with many of my other interview subjects, she fell into her career. A chance meeting led her to journalism and then to fashion writing. Though unknowledgeable about fashion at first, she became captivated by how changes in dress reflected changes in society at large, and has dedicated her life to the study of it. As a fashion historian, I'm always amazed at her proximity to fashion events we read about in books and hear about in lectures. While at the Chicago Tribune, she interviewed Christian Dior a few months before his death in 1957, and then traveled to Paris to see Yves Saint Laurent's first collection for Dior. After that, she lived in LA, New York, and then LA again, covering all the fashion shows and trends for decades. Who else do you know of alive today that went to every Yves Saint Laurent show, interviewed Courage, was good friends with Edith Head? Mary Lou has been so central to the fashion world for decades that designers as diverse as Jeffrey Bean, Rudy Gernreich, and Thierry Mugler all chose for her to write the text for their books. I first met Mary Lou several years ago when researching my master's thesis on Thea Porter. They had become good friends after Mary Lou interviewed Thea for the LA Times in 1970. As I wrote my thesis and then my book on Thea, Mary Lou was incredibly helpful in explaining to me what Thea was like as a friend, as a real person. In this interview, we discuss her seven decades of fashion journalism, her work with the Fashion Group International, her love for Nebraska, and what it was like being a single career woman in the 1950s, among other subjects. Well into her seventh decade of fashion journalism, Mary Lou continues to be invigorated and excited by the continuing shifts in the industry. Her passion and energy are inspirational, as is her ability to balance a loving, strong family life with a hectic career in journalism. Mary Lou sent me a commencement address she gave to seniors from her hometown in Nebraska this past spring, in which she quoted advice given to her by some of her famous good friends. Jeffrey Beans, perhaps, gives the clearest sense of how Mary Lou has retained such passion and engagement in fashion after seven decades writing about it. He told her, don't be afraid of the future. Don't be afraid to create something new. I hope you find your passion and stories as engaging and inspirational as I do. Enjoy. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's great to see you again. You grew up in Nebraska, right? Yes. And what was that like? I still go back there. Growing up in Nebraska, it's the Great Plains, and Nebraska is the exact center of the United States. Mm -hmm. So weather-wise, it's always coldest in winter, hottest in summer. And in a very small town population, well, when I was growing up, it was population 1,203. It teaches you what I just gave a speech about Mm -hmm. in Cambridge, Nebraska. It teaches you, I think, the value of nice. Because in a small town, if you're not nice, your parents are going to hear it, or your grandparents, you know, you're going to be punished for not being nice. So I, I think that's such an important factor in today's business world, a factor that is a lot lacking uh, I have heard young women say, when asked to do something, say, well, that's not in my job description. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I think people need to be aware of the importance of being nice. And what, what, what did your parents do when you were growing up? What it was their... 
Uh, my father was, uh, well, an entrepreneur. Um, he had three farms. He had a herd of cattle, Hereford cattle. He had a herd of buffalo. He had uh, a Shetland pony and um, a Percheron, which is the world's biggest horse. It's uh, Belgian. And he had a grocery store. He had a bowling alley. Uh, he was the John Deere uh, dealer. He was the Dodge and Chrysler dealer. There was almost n nothing he didn't do. Wow. But that's easier in a small town, yeah. of course. And But did growing up with such an entrepreneurial father, did that sort of instill in you a spirit of going after what you wanted to do? I think um, that and my astrological sign uh, inspired me to um, try new things. What's your astrological sign? I'm Aries. Oh, yeah. And yours? I'm a Scorpio. Oh, that's great. My boyfriend's an Aries, and I can oh. really see the difference in him versus me. <laughs> I have an um, Aries brother, too. And I, uh, I think, see if I'm right, I think an Aries man is especially fearless. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, I, at least my boyfriend is. But I think it's a great quality to have, you know, that sort of fearlessness and also the desire to try anything to go yes. after. To not, not feel like that anything is impossible. Exactly. In fact, journalism is in a way that way. Journalism teaches you to, to always present both sides, mm -hmm. uh, which is like being fearless and you know, wanting to see everything before you make up your mind. When did you become interested in journalism? Um, when I was in high school, thanks really, uh, there was this fantastic woman who was head of the University of Nebraska Press, and she was coming to Cambridge to give a speech at the library, and they asked my mother if she could stay at our house, and, and my mother said yes, of course. So uh, her name was Emily, and I, she said, uh, oh, I used to write for the high school newspaper, and she said, oh, well, you must, you have to come to the university and major in journalism. And I so respected her, I said, okay, <laughs> just like that. Yeah. When you got into journalism, did it immediately feel like the right field for you? Yes, it did. Um, I had some great teachers, one of whom, when I was a senior, um, he said, uh, his name was Bill Heiss, he said, I have a job for you at the Lincoln Journal. You have to start the day after graduation. And I said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going home. I've worked hard, and uh, I deserve the summer off. And he said, no, you're not. You're going to work for the Lincoln Journal. And he worked there part-time. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, if you, if you really think it's that important. So I did. <laughs> and. I wrote mainly uh, wedding stories or engagement stories. Mm -hmm. And then you went to the Des Moines Register? Yes. Is that how, That's where right. You, and then you went? To the Chicago Tribune okay. and then the Los Angeles Times. But at the Des Moines Register, that's when fashion came into your world, right? That's correct. Um, the managing editor, I had been there about two weeks and they had a, a probably still have a great program where for their first two weeks at the paper, you sit on many desks, mm -hmm. the city desk, the sports desk, the fashion, not, they didn't call it that, the women's desk. And uh, so at the end of those two weeks, my boss, Frank Irely, the managing editor, said, you're going to be our new fashion editor. 
And I said, well, I can't. I don't know a thing about fashion. And he said, you'll learn. The woman who had been the fashion editor, at, she was there when I arrived, but the, I guess she had already announced that she was leaving. Her uncle owned the paper, and uh, her aunt was uh, the editor of Vogue. So she was well-versed. And the week that I worked with her then, before she left, it was Haute Couture Week in Paris, and she would be, we would be together, and she would be looking at the AP and UP, at the news flashes, and she said, Oh, she would say, oh, this is, this is Jacques Fatt's new tulip look. And I thought, Jacques Fatt. Oh, and I thought, Jacquees Fatt. That's what she <laughs> means. I knew nothing. And then I tried to see a tulip in that. I couldn't at all. So it was a difficult learning process. Were you interested in clothing before in fashion or? I suppose in a way, yes, uh, but not super interested. I've always, to me, the, the, well, the most interesting thing about fashion to me is how it's a reflection of the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, working there at the paper, after about six weeks, I told Mr. Ireley, I said, I'm just going to have to resign. This job is over my head. There's a sign on the Des Moines Register, it may still be there, uh, 535,000. That was the uh, how many readers. And I said, every day I come to work, I see that sign, and I know 535,000 people know that I don't have a clue of what I'm talking about. And he said, well, you're going to learn. I'm going to send you to New York for what they called Press Week. And it was very uh, different from what it's like today. New York Press Week was a product of Eleanor, her name was Eleanor Lambert. She had every major designer was her client. She had her own PR company. Mm -hmm. In fact, she paid the way of a lot of people to come to, we sat at the Pierre Hotel and uh, watched the clothes go by uh, while eating or uh, it was amazing. It was like a several-day event that yes. you did, yeah? Uh -huh. And major designers came and mm -hmm. showed their clothes. Then when I went to work for the Chicago Tribune, I asked my wonderful boss, Miss Nangle, if I said, I think you should come to New York with me so you see what it's like. Because she, she had been the beauty editor for a long time, but was not informed about fashion. Mm -hmm. So she came with me and she said, well, this is insane. You can't, uh, we're now looking at these clothes well after the buyers have seen them. Is that correct? I said, yes, that's true. And she said, well, that would be like telling a sports editor that they can't uh, see the World Series or can't report on the World Series until six weeks after it happened. That's crazy. We have to come when the buyers come. And we did, and it changed everything. It makes a lot of sense, and you know, yes. that it was... It, I well, mean, it doesn't make sense that you were seeing it so separated because you're also not connected with what's gonna end up in the stores if you're not yes. talking to the buyers or having any communication. Exactly, and the um, sitting there 
watching those clothes go by and then after realizing that all we were seeing were her clients, that was not right. Mm -hmm. So when when Miss Nangle talked several other papers into joining us, I'll never forget the first people who would see us. Anne Klein's first husband, mm -hmm. a great guy, uh, Bonnie Cashin, an amazing woman designer. It, it was difficult though. I remember walking into a showroom and they had you sign in and I got to M-A-R-Y-L and they said, are you Mary Luther from the uh, Chicago Tribune? And I, I said yes and I thought, oh my God, what have I done or something happened to my family? And uh, they said, well, we're really sorry, but we can't let you come in. We are clients of Eleanor Lambert, and she has asked us not to. And I hope you can understand. And I said, okay, thank you, <laughs> and left. Because you were going against what she wanted? Yes. I mean, I've heard she, that she was quite formidable. Oh, yes. And, but it was also true that she would know if enough newspapers started coming with buyers, there goes her press week. Mm -hmm. What was it like being a young single woman having a career at that time? You know, in first of all in Lincoln and then in Chicago and then in New York. Well, when I read about Me Too and all of the many young women subjected to sexual advancements, it never happened to me, ever. Maybe because I, I was not the most attractive thing you ever saw. I, but it, this is a funny story. When I worked at uh, the Des Moines Register, there was a photographer, his name was Carl Turk. And we became uh, friends, and a group of us would go out at night dancing, etc. Just friends, though. And uh, Carl came to Cambridge with me. He was from Iowa, but he came to visit me in Cambridge on like a weekend. and. He then left the paper and went to uh, the Chicago Tribune. And he said, you know, why don't you come to the Chicago Tribune? I, I think it's time for you to make a move. And I said, well, I don't know anybody there. And what I do know about the Chicago Tribune, the man who owned it, Colonel McCormick, had these crazy rules uh, that you couldn't mention England in a story because he felt that he or someone in his family had been mistreated by the English. I mean, it was, they wouldn't send me to London, you know. It was, so I said, I don't want to work for a man like that. And Carl said, oh, well, you're not going to be writing editorials, you know, come on, it's a good opportunity. So I did go. Then when my wonderful boss at the Chicago Tribune, when Christian Dior had come to uh, Marshall Fields mm -hmm. for, it was the 10th anniversary of the New Look, which meant it was 1957, and he was there for a personal appearance, and he was quite charming, and, uh, but alas, he died within maybe about six months later. And so then they announced that this young 21-year-old, Yves Saint Laurent, was going to replace him. So I asked Miss Nangle, thank goodness that she had been with me and she saw the importance of Christian Dior. And, and I said, do you think the paper would send me to Paris to cover Yves Saint Laurent's first collection? She did, and she talked them into it. And, but this is the aside that's interesting. She called my mother in Nebraska 
and she said, uh, Mrs. Luther, uh, how would you feel if your daughter, if we sent your daughter to Paris to cover uh, this fashion event uh, with a young man, a photographer, young man? And my mother said, fine, you know, I trust my daughter. Well, little did Miss Nangle know that my mother knew it was Carl Turk, <clears throat> whom she knew. Anyway, so we behaved well. You know, so many of the sort of books or movies from the 50s, like the best of everything about like young women, you know, starting their careers. And it, how that it was such a new thing for young oh, yes. single women to have careers. And women were, as in journalism, yeah. you went right to the women's department. Mm -hmm. You were never put on a, you know, the city desk or sports or, it was just, that's what you did. And that's what I accepted. Did you feel like you were breaking new ground by being a, having being a young woman with you know with a career? Yes, I did. Um, um, I'll never forget when I had I have, I have two sons. It was still of the time when their teacher would uh, send a note home, ask your mother if she could come, and I, I was incensed by that. I I thought why don't they say ask your father to come? I don't. I didn't think that was right, but of course I went. <laughs> so going back to Christian Dior, what was he like? The man himself. Yes. He, well, I've read a lot about him that he was um, kind of a nervous wreck and um, uh, not difficult, just uh, nervous. And un uh, he didn't realize his own importance. He couldn't have been nicer on that trip. I only met him that once. Mm -hmm. I know all the good things he did when he was at Dior. I, I totally admire him. And he also what was a kind of the exact proof of what happens in fashion. Um, and that story comes to me from Andre Courage. Andre Courage, a very famous Paris designer, lunar looks, told me that fashion, I was interviewing him, and he said fashion always flourishes when there has been something, a real crisis in the world. And he pointed out like after the depression there was uh, amazing new things with um, Art Deco, Art Nouveau, after the man landed on the moon, um, amazing changes in first time women wore minis uh, and so I was thinking if this is true what is going to happen the the proof of Christian Dior in his new look of 1957 was that it was after World War II and it was a time for change again mm -hmm. and he did it no one had ever seen a look like he did it was called the new look a fitted jacket and a longer, fuller skirt, which was, you know, no one did that. <laughs> By the time you met him, had, had you fully immersed yourself in fashion? Where you did you really understand it and get it? By that point? Yes, I think so. Yes. And then you went. When? How was it when you went to Paris and saw YSL's first oh, show? Oh, it was amazing. It made me realize why fashion's birthplace is Paris. Why. Paris is the most important fashion city in the world, still is, because immediately after the show, uh, people lined up outside the headquarters of uh, Christian Dior and uh, waited for him to come out on the balcony. 
I would guess there, there could have been a million people all just waiting to see this young man. I don't think that would have happened anywhere else in the world. Another uh, funny thing about that, the show he called his trapeze look, and I was walking to the place where he was gonna come out on the, to wave at everyone. I walked out with a British journalist, and I said, well, I know I'm going to say in my lead that the king is dead, long live the king. And she said, no, you can't do that. That's a British saying, you can't do that. And so I didn't. <laughs> uh, my, my lead was uh, about the daring young man on the flying trapeze. But in the end, I said, the king is dead, long live the king. And he was the king for a very oh, long time. very. Did you continue to go to his shows yes. throughout his career? Yes, I don't think I ever missed one. Oh, wow, amazing. One time he came out with a hot water bottle and clinging to it. He had a lot of physical yeah. problems. But I had never seen anything like that, <laughs> you know. Funny things do happen at fashion he shows. He definitely sounded like... Troubled. Yes, very troubled, very, very nervous. Yes. And did you interview him? Many times, yes. And did he, I mean, did he, did that come across in interviews and his Shy, issues? a very shy person. But when he liked the subject, then he was interested, mm -hmm. you know. What designers most inspired you that you saw over the years? Well, in those days in Paris, mm -hmm. uh, would have been Pierre Cardin, mm -hmm. André Courage, and of course Saint Laurent. Those would have been the biggies, in the ones that inspired me, because they were creative, they took chances. At that time, Pucci showed in, in Rome, and I, I, in those days you went to Rome, not Milan, mm -hmm. that's where the fashion shows were. And then Valentino, uh, Emilio Pucci, uh, I think has been kind of much underestimated. Before Emilio Pucci, clothes had inner things going yeah. on, corsets and stays and uh, to, to create the shape. Emilio Pucci did away with all that. His were the first couture level clothes not to have inner linings and all of that. I think he should have been more recognized for that. He later became, well, he even invited me to his home in Florence. When I was at the Chicago Tribune, <clears throat> he designed a collection of inner uh, underwear mm -hmm. for a big major uh, Illinois company, national company. And so when I uh, was going to Rome, they contacted him. Was that Form Fit Rogers? Yes, yeah. exactly. They contacted him and said that, uh, you know, like, would, I would like to interview him. So he was at that time a member of Congress, whatever the mm -hmm. Italians called. And I met him at a recess, which was very interesting, and interviewed him. And then he asked me to come on my way to Paris to stop in Florence and meet his family. I mean, it was kind of amazing, and it taught me such a lesson. He was talking about the war, and he told me how they hid their son uh, so he wouldn't have to fight in the war. And I thought to myself, if somebody did that in Nebraska, they would have been ostracized and you know you wouldn't ever dare hide somebody from not serving their country 
So, that, and, I, and I appreciated what he said. You know, if you don't really believe in something, he knew what Mussolini was, so, so they hid their son. Mm-hmm. And, and, but to hear that, I was amazed. It must have been quite a jump coming from small-town Nebraska to Pucci, Palazzo, and oh, Lawrence. Exactly. Palazzo was right. Um, Amazing. Wow. I've always really admired his clothes. I love them. Obviously, I first met you because of Thea Porter. Yes. When, when did you guys first meet again? Well, it would have been, I mean... Late 60s, I, th- I think it would have been the late 60s, or it could have been the very early 70s. Mm-hmm. Zandra Rhodes is celebrating her 50th anniversary this coming year yeah. and asked me to write a foreword for her book. Oh, wonderful. So I've just been looking back at those years. And it was amazing to me to think that Zandra Rhodes, Thea Porter, Jean Muir, Vivian Westwood, that four women really uh, were the stars in London. I don't think that has ever happened before, you know? Thea was just, as you know, the most generous person. Generous in her ideas, in her... My home in Nebraska has so many pillows that she gave me you know just she was just amazing no she didn't give clothes yeah I, we didn't as a journalist you never would have accepted the rule was if you're at a show and everybody gets a little something mm-hmm. you can take it but you can't accept clothes I think probably people are a little less um, oh yes. Nowadays, a little less strict about that, yeah. from what I know, at least with the magaz- the people who work in magazines. Yes, yes. You were working for the LA Times by then. Who had mm-hmm. you been working for in, when you moved to New York? Oh, for the- McCall's. My, I, I married my boss. Mm-hmm. I, I was, I was, that's what I thought you had. <laughs> yes. Uh, my boss, my husband, I, I went to work for him in January and we got married in June. Oh, wow. The reason this, what, 19, I was... what, 1960? 61. okay. The reason he offered me a job is I was then working at the L.A. Times, and I liked it. And But here was this guy. He had, uh, very smartly, he asked newspaper fashion editors to interview buyers in their city about fabrics for home sewing. And he was smart because uh, a local fashion editor is more likely to get the ear of a buyer. Mm -hmm. So I did several stories for him and he called and he said that he'd like me to come to New York for an interview. And I thought, well, I have friends in New York, that'd be nice, it'd be a free trip to New York. (laughs) So I I came to New York and uh, I thought he was fascinating, and uh, but not. I had no, and and back to had I ever been approached? Never by him. When I worked for him, mm-hmm. we would meet after work for dinner, and the first time he ever took me to dinner, he walked me back to my apartment, or maybe he took a cab, and he said, "Now, if you think I'm going to kiss you good night, you're crazy." And I said, and if you think I'm going to let you, you're crazy. That's how, <laughs> that's how it all began. And that was like McCall's Fashion Magazine or the Patterns? It or was called it? McCall Sportswear Merchandiser. Okay. And the, the magazine was all about sportswear. And that, again, was good information yeah. for me. 
I love that story. That's so cute about you guys. <laughs> and then you, and then he moved with you to, to L.A. When yes. You well, to the, in the meantime, during those years in New York, my old boss, Nick Williams, the editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Times, a great man, mm-hmm. would always call us when he came to New York, and we'd always go out to dinner, and we would always call him when we were in California. Mm-hmm. So on one trip to California, uh, Mr. Williams said, what would it take to get both of you to come back to the Los Angeles Times? And Arthur quickly said, not much. (laughs) And and I was just, I couldn't believe he said that. He was so born and reared in New York. Um, So anyway, we did move in 1969 Mm -hmm. back to the LA Times. That 1969 is so memorable to me because that was the year of Woodstock, mm-hmm. Man on the Moon, uh, again, yeah. an interesting time, well, to be alive. But yeah, those to were ben- both within like a week or two of each other. Exactly. Amazing. Out of all the places you've lived, what made, what's, feels the most like home, you know? Um, Nebraska. Really? <laughs> yes. Well, but I, I've always loved both Los Angeles and New York. Mm-hmm. I don't have that one is better than the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved being in Los Angeles. It's a very accepting city, especially accepting of crazies. <laughs> I, I like that. Yeah. You know? and, and now New York, of course, is very accepting, but more of immigrants. <laughs> I don't think crazy people are... Do you know what I mean by that? People who act up, eccentric. I don't think it's that easy to be accepted here in New York Mm -hmm. as it it, it still is in Los Angeles. Um, What was the, I mean, that was a sort of, I think a sort of pivotal time in L.A. fashion, sort of L.A. trying to become more of a fashion world with Gernreich and Galanos. What was it like working there versus... Really, there was one major designer, James Galanos, and he always showed in New York, not in Los Angeles. So I asked him, I said, you know, if I abide by your release date, which I would, why can't I see the clothes here? And he wouldn't do it. Uh, Los Angeles really didn't have a market at that time. It kind of grew. So American fashion was really New York. And when you were in at the LA Times, you still had to fly to Europe every yes. season, and yes, and, and fortunate for me, the LA Times had a rule that if you were flying more than I don't know how many miles, they would fly you first class. So I always was flown first class to New York, first class to Europe and back. I even was on. Um, oh gosh, it no longer exists. The plane that Concord. I was on the Concord twice. So anyway, I lived the life of someone who I wasn't, but people would assume if you're flying first class mm-hmm. like that, that you must be very important. So I was treated. Well, that's great. I, you know, I don't think any newspaper can afford to do that anymore. No, but no. That sounds like an amazing opportunity. You yeah, to it was. Have that. Amongst the as. Um, papers. I found a photograph of you and her and like Jody Jacob- Jacobson yes. and some other people. I have, I'll have to find it and send it to you. But what was living in 
California like in the 70s? Okay. Well, it was wonderful. <laughs> um, because you have to drive in California, it, people entertain in their homes. You didn't, like in New York, you didn't go for dinner and have a couple of drinks and then go home. Mm-hmm. Um, so caftans were major. And it's funny how they've kind of come back this season. Mm-hmm. So entertaining at home was lots of fun. My husband is very gregarious and very funny. Was there a lot of intersection with the entertainment industry? Well, Thea introduced me to Gregory Peck. Gregory, Peck. Gregory Peck's wife at that moment was like every French designer who came to L.A. would go to her. And she would then call me, or she would see that they met other people. And uh, Thea brought me to Gregory Peck's home, where I learned that uh, he bought his clothes from catalogs. (laughs) I think he was extremely shy. Johnny Carson from Nebraska was coming through the LA Times one day, and I saw him with, I think, the editor. And I thought, ooh, should I get up out of my seat and go saying there is no place like Nebraska? And then I thought, no, I shouldn't do that. So I didn't do it. But I did go to the where I ate every day to the executive dining room, and there he was with his wife. And uh, so I thought, well, I just can't resist. So I went to their table, and I said, hi, I'm Mary Lou Luther. I work here, and I'm from Nebraska. And he looked at me as if I had like three heads, like, okay, so what? Do you know? It was it was embarrassing. Then I saw his wife a couple of weeks later at an event at Bullock's Wilshire, and she went out of her way to kind of apologize. She said how much they enjoyed their tour of the Times and da 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 da. She was a client of Thea's as well. Joanne Carson was yes. also oh yeah Thea. What brought you back to New York when you came back in the 80s? The woman who was my boss at the LA Times Mm -hmm. really didn't like me. And she made my life difficult. And um, so one day, uh, something had just happened, and I was uh, complaining, and she threw a pencil at me. And I said, I thought, I don't have to take this. So I called my husband, and he said, no, quit right now, quit. I'm fine. We're fine. Don't worry. So I did. And that's how the two of us decided to come back to New York, mm-hmm. and, uh, and we did. And is that when you start? When did you start working with the Fashion um, Group International? Um, I became a member. This is my 60th anniversary oh, year. I became a member of the fashion group when I worked at the Chicago Tribune. And uh, I did, I think, my first fashion show uh, in 1968. I'm pretty sure that was right. And the the shows then were live, uh, you know, real close. (laughs) I I love working with the fashion group because of the really nice, wonderful people you meet. networking mm-hmm. and it, it's a great institution it's nonprofit and it's for the to give information about fashion 
to members and press. Every season, you how do you put to, you put together these shows? Can you yeah. talk a little bit about what you sure. do? I put together a committee of both press and retail, usually five people, and usually five of the most important people in the industry. And we meet three times, sometimes just two times, and talk about the collections. And it's always great to hear both retail and press because other fashion shows, you might, Vogue might have a synopsis of the season, Harper's Bazaar, Lord and Taylor, but those are one viewpointed. Mm-hmm. So I always felt it was very important to have both viewpoints, all viewpoints. And now I've included, of course, email, not email. What am I trying to say? Like online, like? Yes. And have, and mm-hmm. have enjoyed the input they give. <clears throat> anyway, so uh, then uh, we talk about the shows, and then I edit film that our photographer uh, has taken in New York, London, Milan, and Paris, and then I trend it with the help of other members I, that I work with. Mm-hmm. And then I write the script and do the voiceover it's given now at the Hearst Tower mm-hmm. screening room. It's like a, a wonderful, it's almost like going to a movie theater. Um, there's a stage. So, uh, yeah, this, <laughs> the auditorium fills, and then we play the, sh- the audio visual. And then after that is over, then there's the panel discussion. And I ask uh, industry leaders like Bridget Foley from Emmonsworth Daily and uh, Robin Gavon from the Washington Post, uh, uh, Ken Downing from Neiman Marcus. I'm leaving out a lot of people, Mm -hmm. but anyway, important special guest moderators to discuss. Not, I, I always tell them, I don't think we need to go back and review the trends of the season. That's what the audiovisual is all about. Let's talk about the business of the season. So then we talk about, you know, well now would be, what do you think of the designers leaving the New York shows or now this coming up season? What do you think of them coming back Mm -hmm. to New York after showing in Paris? Uh, and of course, all the multitudinous changes in retail. I clipped something here. This year, the number of closures in retail stores hit 3,000. 3,000 retailers and brands are continuing to make investments in technology while working to realign their businesses in a crowded and highly competitive market. I'm quoting from Women's Wear Daily. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of store closures. Then there is this. Again, I'm quoting from Women's Wear Daily. The market continues to reshape itself in answer to consumer demands, proliferating opportunities in some channels while reducing options in others. Of much needed change, NPD's latest report, The Future of Apparel, confirmed these developments, noting that online shopping increased year on year by 7%, totaling now $46 billion in online apparel sales. That's amazing. I mean, in your career, you've seen pretty much the rise and fall of malls. 
yes. the, the fall of department stores and the rise of yes, the I internet have. and online. Exactly. It's oh, that which brings up a good point because with all this change, I thought oh, these last collections are going to be amazing. There's going to be so much creativity. It has to happen because the world is falling apart. Mm -hmm. And when anything like that happens, fashion flourishes. Yeah. <clears throat> and it didn't. And then I got to reflect and I thought, well, in a way it did. Uh, it certainly reflects the times, meaning uh, this has been a season, this fall season, of really anything goes. Yeah. You want to look oversized, you want to look bodycon, you want to look, look at me, decorative, you want to look minimalist, uh, you want to look sexy, you want to look um, regal. Um, it's just there, I can't think of a thing that looks out, except for me, and I, this is a personal thing. I think the cliche of the season and last season are red carpet where you put your leg out mm -hmm. so you that to me if I see that one more time <laughs> it's just so dumb yeah especially now with women asserting themselves more you don't have to be a sex object you can be a sex subject if you want I've definitely noticed that the collections felt they felt if you look at them as a whole kind of chaotic and yes of, they were chaotic just yeah. like our time mm -hmm. yes you know having gone to the collections for so many years and also watched the retail market change so dramatically. Do you have any sense of where do you think it's going to go next? I think it's going to become much more personal and much more entertainment-centered. And I think that the, um, the appearance of and the importance of the influencers is amazing. In many ways, I had uh, lunch yesterday with Ralph Rucci, and uh, I mentioned the influencers, and I said, you know, Ralph, your great influencer was Joan Kaner, the fashion director of Neiman Marcus, and a great woman. Mm -hmm. she, went, she liked his clothes. She went to him, and she said, you know, if you will outfit me for my trip to Paris, I know people will ask me about the clothes, and I'll tell them where they came from. She did, and she really made his business. And I'm happy to tell you they remain great friends. So she was an influencer. Now, at first, I, they were actresses. But now that that world, that, to me, that's worth a whole great big discussion. I've done clippings on it on the names of influencers who actually influence sales versus influencers who are just get likes but they don't really influence sales. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that's a new part of the world. In fact, for the next show for the fashion group, I hope to get an influencer because I, I think that's now an important part of our industry. And of course, voices, all the technological things that are happening. Today's Wednesday is filled with interesting stories about technology. And when I say voices, do you know what I mean? You mean in terms of like Instagram and YouTube and all those kind of no, online No, real voices? voices, like when you're in a car and you want directions. Oh, okay. There's a very interesting story in today's Wednesday oh, about true. voices. You should be sure to read it. Oh, well. Um, because uh, more and more, I guess, they're very helpful 
in especially in a brick and mortar store they can tell you where to go they can help you what are you looking for what size are you you know mm -hmm. they can be very important and I think also retailers know that it's time for entertainment again like Bloomingdale's was the center of entertainment in the 70s I mean it was amazing that that was the place to go have dinner dancing and and I think that's something retailers must woo women back into the stores. Also, what I think they should do is what the beauty industry has done forever, is giving samples. I think they've got to give something back to the, mm -hmm. well, that's not giving back, that's giving to. <laughs> There's so many opportunities for creativity in that area. My other big observation is now three or four years ago, I think the show has replaced the design in creativity. The most creative shows you can imagine. Well, like the Dolce & Gabbana show last season where they had the first drones on the runway showing handbags. And of course, um, no one has could exceed Karl Lagerfeld for Chanel. Or in this country, I think Tom Brown has done some amazing shows. So has Tommy Hilfiger. And others have done, you know, really nice shows too. But for creativity in showmanship, it's Brown, it's Tom Brown. Sort of fashion as spectacle. Yes, for sure. Which, I, you know, I think really kind of started with... Mugler, who you yes, wrote exactly. about. Yes, for sure. And then Johnny Versace. Mm -hmm. I know when um, when Johnny died, uh, the Met did something and they, they called his clothes uh, sex object clothes. To me, they were not sex object. They were sex subject. And there's a difference. I don't know, the woman wearing Versace didn't look like she was for sale. Uh, she looked sure of herself and if I want to show my body parts <laughs> I'm going to. <clears throat> working uh, at the fashion group I love working with young people. One of the young women I worked with this last time I said you know the Me Too movement what do you think about would you be hesitant to wear sexy clothes and she said no because I would control my own destiny I want to wear what I want to wear, and if somebody finds it suggestive, I would just walk away or tell them, or she didn't say, or slap mm -hmm. them. But And I, I think <clears throat> that's a wonderful new spirit of how a woman should present her body in clothes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there was a certain movement, you know, during like second wave feminism when in order to feel liberated, you had to reject yes. being sexy? Yes, you had to wear men's clothes. Mm -hmm. Androgyny, uh, Armani created androgyny in the very early 70s. To me, it was a reflection on how important it was for women to be accepted in the workplace. If you dress like a man, you'd be treated like mm -hmm. a man. And there was a lot of truth to that. Was there certain expectations on how you were supposed to dress? Yes. I, in fact, to this day, I give this advice to people looking for a job. If they're hired, I think that they should look at what their boss is wearing 
and kind of assume certain things from that. And before they buy anything new to wear on a new job, I would really take a look at the boss mm -hmm. and take your lead from that, if indeed you admire the boss. You've been writing for a very long time a, yes. um, a column of advice about fashion. I have. It's called Clotheslines. And <laughs> it's question and answer. Mm -hmm. I make up the first question okay. because it's always illustrated by a designer a sketch. And the only way I can work through that is for me to make the question and for them to provide the answer. Other than that, they're real. And yes, I love and I learn so much from readers, what they really want to know. And is it both people who are trying to get into the industry and also people who are just asking, or is it more personal, oh, no. like what do I wear to? No, it's what do I wear. It's, uh, it's newspaper readers. So you get every kind. You get, yes, I get desi young designers, like um, I appear in the uh, Cleveland Plain Dealer and they have a great uh, school in uh, nearby, I know the name of that school as well as anything. So I get a lot of the student questions from them. Kent. Oh yeah, I was gonna say Kent State. That's the only it, one I know of in uh, Ohio. It. Yeah, that's it. Kent they have a very State. good museum. Yes, for sure. And the two uh, New York designers gifted them with uh, mm -hmm. lots of money. And it's a great school. You made up. You became quite good friends with a lot of designers, correct? Well, let me say. See, I, my, the journalistic side of me would want to deny that. Mm. But this is how it would happen. I would be, I was like, for instance, at the LA Times, and every major designer, sooner or later, came to Los Angeles. And of course, I would interview them. And they would then say, almost all asked the same thing. They wanted to meet Edith Head. And so I would take them to meet Edith Head, and that would go swimmingly. And then I, maybe because I'm kind of gregarious, that friendship just blossomed. Mm -hmm. The same Johnny Versace, I would, was a great friend. Uh, he used to invite me to his home, Thierry Mugler. When I won a CFDA award, um, they asked me to find some big designer to introduce things. So I asked Thierry, and he did. It was great. And Thierry is, was very funny. And now, I don't know, as you may know, he's changed his name. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and his look. Okay. He yeah. looks like a deer. I yeah. mean, he really does. Uh, Manfred is his name I now. Know. And I talked to um, Didier Grumbach not too long ago. Didier was head of the, of the Schoenberg Syndicale, mm -hmm. and D, uh, Didier had just seen one of um, the shows that um, Manfred <laughs> had uh, done the costumes mm -hmm. for, and m more than the costumes. Um, sort of art direction, creative director, direction, yeah. at, right. And he said it was excellent, it was just wonderful. So I just hope he's happy. I, yeah, it's, when you see someone change their look and their name, it's, it feels a little disconcerting. Well, you know that they want to change their lives. Yeah. You know. But I I can see that having, you know, loved his clothes and also the sort of the whole spectacle of everything he put it's together, creativity. that it would make sense that he would go into costume yeah. design and production design. In this country, my my first designer to get to know and totally respect was Rudy Gernrich. Mm -hmm. 
And then here in New York, Jeffrey Bean was my idol. Jeffrey Bean was such an interesting man. When I look at some of the books I have, the clothes that he's, I'm just totally amazed at his creativity. We would, we probably had lunch once a month. And uh, one time I told him, I said, what is the word for someone who always takes an opposite side to you? Confrontationalist. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's the right word. I'll think of the right word, but anyway, I told him, I said, you know, you're, uh, a, you're always... Like antagonistic, kind of? No, not, he is not antagonistic. It's just, if I say black, he's going to say white. Mm. That's just his instinct. Contrary. Yeah, you're a contrarian. That's it. I said, you know, you're a contrarian. And he looked at me kind of funny, and I said, but I love contrarians, mm -hmm. because where else am I going to hear both sides of anything? And that, again, is journalistic training, I think. He yeah. was a contrarian. I don't, I don't feel like he gets as much respect as he should, or, you know, just... I do, too, but it's be one reason, women's wear daily. Mm -hmm. They refused to cover him, even, yeah. when John Fairchild was hit. <laughs> and, Oh, I love in, I worked with uh, Jeffrey Bean on a book and I loved, do you know what he called John Fairchild? Right. John Unfairchild. <laughs> I love that. No, that's why. Or he could have made a mint in accessories and beauty. He did have a fragrance. I still have some of it. Mm -hmm. It's great. Well, anyway, but you're right. He never got really the attention he deserved. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think, in, you know, you see so many other designers that were working at the same time as him who everyone talks about all like the time. Like Bill Blass and Oscar de la Renta. Yeah, and everyone references them. Yeah. And not as, I think that I don't see as many people no. talking, young designers, young, you know, journalists referencing talking about him in the same right. way that he deserves. Because when I come across his clothes, either in a magazine or in a vintage store, they're oh. like so gorgeous. Oh yeah, they are amazing. Beautiful. Of all the things you've done in your life, what are you most proud of? My sons. I, that's and grandsons. I, I have a granddaughter, but she's only five. So, <laughs> in that speech that I gave in Cambridge, mm -hmm. I asked both sons to write. Gareth uh, graduated from Yale, but Andy, my son Andy, and his wife met at Yale. And then Gareth went to Yale with high honors. And now Nicholas is at Pomona College. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so they've all prospered. Was it, how difficult was it raising children and having such a busy career? Oh, had great help. Uh, help that very few people have today. Number one, my mother-in-law lived with us. And it was always such a comfort to know she was there with them all day long. I mean, they were in school and stuff, but she would be there. And then we always had a housekeeper. So I had the luxury of coming home from work and being charming and reading bedtime stories, mm -hmm. you know. It was easy. Yeah, I think that that definitely helps, you know, if you're not coming home to cleaning and exactly. being oh, exactly. in charge of all of that as well. I'm very aware of the importance of a woman who stays at home. I just read a thing about how the word housewife 
is a hated word now in London. Anyway, when I go home to Nebraska, I live in the house that I grew up in. In fact, I sleep in the bed that I'm pretty sure I was conceived in. And it's such a, a, a physical thing to work there. I run up and down stairs all the day long. I sweep uh, outside. You have to do all this work because that, you know, it's not like you call the doorman and they come mm -hmm. up and fix something. It's, it's a lot of physical labor in staying at home. Mm -hmm. Do you have any regrets in your life? Yes. I regret that I didn't ask my mother more questions about her parents. Mm. I just, I think about that a lot now. Why didn't I? There's no one else now to ask. Do you know much about your family background? Yes, uh, yes. I know that my mother's family came from England and Wales. I know that my father's family came from Germany. But I, that's really all I know. Mm. I regret, I wish I did know more. Was your mother a stay-at-home? My mother was fantastic. My mother read, uh, she must have read like 10 books a week. She helped my father in the grocery store. Mm -hmm. She would do the books. She, she was just a reader like you can never imagine. A very big Catholic and very accepting of people. I have a lot of gay friends. She always, that was fine, you know. Anyway, I was so fortunate to have have her for a mother and my father for a father. Yeah, they sound amazing. Yeah. You know, entrepreneurial, and she sounds curious she the, and inquisitive. If you're she reading was that the, much, the first president of the library in Cambridge, Nebraska. It was funded by uh, from my hometown a man who became senator from Nebraska. His name was Hugh Butler. Hugh Butler. In fact, it's called the Butler Memorial Museum. Anyway, she was very helpful to people. Always, she's the one who made it possible for me to meet the woman from the University mm -hmm. of Nebraska Press and all that. She liked doing that. How much has the town where you're from changed over the years? I'm probably not a very good person to ask that. Uh, to me, it looks like it's thriving. But I told that to my friend Donna, and she said, how could you say that? Donna is my friend who makes it possible for me to have the house there. We've known each other since, I say since we were four, she says we were five. We play gin rummy every afternoon while I'm there. And she <laughs> takes care of the house. She said, no, it's not. She said, remember, we used to have two pharmacies. Now there's one. We used to have three grocery stores. Now there's one supermarket. She sees that as a decline. Mm -hmm. I kind of see it as a sign of the times. It's easier to have one supermarket than three grocery stores. Do you know? Mm -hmm. It seems more logical. I mean, I think that's been the sort of the trend across yes. smaller towns and all across America. Yes, but they still have, I think, they still have a lot of great small businesses. They have what is called the hometown agency. It's an insurance agency. I get all my insurance, and that's not true. I don't get all of it from that. But my house insurance, car insurance, mm -hmm. a lot of, oh, and the thing I miss, there used to be a great dry cleaning store in Cambridge. Now there is none. That business must be endangered. Dry cleaning? Uh-huh. 
It's I've have trouble finding a good dry cleaner in the yeah. city. I mean, there are lots, but I've not even found good ones. Yeah. So, like, where did you grow up? What city? Here. Well, I was born here, and then um, when I was seven, we moved to England, to London, and then I moved back to go to NYU. So London is important yeah. in your mm-hmm. life. Yeah. Oh yeah, London is such a great city, <clears throat> the greatest fashion school ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved growing up there because you know coming across Aussie Clarks at flea oh, markets and yes. things like that, and that's when I started getting into that era of British fashion that led yes. me to Thea, and then did the Thea show at Zandra's Museum, and I've done lots of things around that that's era. That's so great. It's been. Oh, I love Thea. I won't keep you too much longer, but I just wanted to... I have enjoyed it so much. Thank you so much. I've loved talking with you about everything. What are you most excited about? You know, because you've worked for such a long time. Are you still excited about fashion and doing yes. all these things? Oh, yes, I am. Bill Cunningham was a great friend. Mm-hmm. And Bill, uh, would every time I see him, he'd say, never stop working. And I think there's such great truth in that. I see people my age who have stopped working, and believe me, there's a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think as long as you can work and you enjoy it, and I, as I certainly do, uh, that you should. And are you still excited when you go to a fashion show? Yes, really- especially certain fashion shows, mm-hmm. yes. And I'm especially interested in young designers. The Equitamani, let's see, 14 years ago, uh, a woman um, who, um, she, she was a fashion director of Bergdorf's, and then she started her own PR company. And she asked me for lunch one day, and she said, you know, I have a new client, Ecodemani Wines, and they want to tie in with an Italian-American designer. <clears throat> and I said, well, there might be two. I said, why don't you just make it, they, why don't they help young designers? And she said, okay, let me get back to you. But she called the next morning, she said, I have $100,000. Can you put together a committee that, that could decide who would get scholarships? Mm-hmm. I did, and uh, we met for 13 years until Ecodemani decided that uh, it, they weren't getting anything from it. They got a lot of publicity but no one was buying their wine because of it, do you know? So they stopped supporting uh, the, the uh, but we discovered uh, Zach Posen, Derek Lamb, uh, oh, yeah, almost any kind of young designer you can think of, uh, we discovered, we gave them their scholarship. So I've always loved doing that. And then the fashion group gives a rising star award. It's not money, but it's publicity. Mm-hmm. And I love being involved in that. Do you have you ever mentored, mm-hmm. directly mentored yeah. either designers well, or journalists? I, yes, I have. It's not a full-time job. Yeah. But, but yes, I do. Helped them with their career oh, and introductions yeah. and any yes, way you can. and edit their resumes mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Fantastic. That must be... It must feel good to sort of give back to the next yes. generations and see them prosper. Oh, I love doing that. It's great. Are there any designers you're really excited about right now? That you... uh, yes, Rick Owens is like, I love Rick Owens. Uh, uh, Tom Brown, uh, 
Carl Lagerfeld. He's a young designer. He is. Yeah, no, it's the way his brain thinks. Is. I'm a fan, and I don't really know them. I've been to their collections. Uh, Dolce & Gabbana. Uh, they were the first to use um, different age groups, mm -hmm. different sex groups, yeah. <laughs> you know. I asked um, Ralph Ritchie about them yesterday, and he said, well, no, I don't like their clothes. <laughs> and I mean, I can understand Ralph saying that, but... Well, they're the, very the, opposite to yeah, the way he The creativity of the presentation is amazing. What is Ralph doing now? He just Custom. Custom. And he looks happy. Good. I interviewed him a couple of years ago when he you know, had, still was, had his own collection. Yeah. Um, he worked with Linda <coughs> Fargo at uh, Birdworth's with a special collection. I said to him yesterday, I, I think you should do more of that. Stores are hungry for exclusivity. Mm -hmm. Do, if you can, I think that's a way to go. Yeah, I mean, I think the stores want a way to get people in the door and yes. that's just for them. Yes. And yesterday he asked me what I thought was going to happen next. And I said to me two things. If I were a designer, I would look at Hollywood fashion uh, and uh, space. I think lunar, just uh, anyone's idea of what it's like out there. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think we've done enough of that. And when you're talking about Hollywood fashion, are you talking about like red carpet or like oh, old no, movies? Oh no, I'm talking about the old movies. movies. Yeah, no, so talking old like Hollywood. Edith Head and Adrian. And yes, it. exactly. And how how did you first meet? You were you were good friends with Edith Head, right? Yes. How did you meet her? Interviewing her. Um, this a great story. What did they call? They call a bungalow. She had a bungalow at Universal, and um, so I made an appointment. I walked in, and here was this long, narrow, and you would seat right there, and there were her eight Academy Awards mm -hmm. right here, and she she came out. And she said, I do that on purpose. She mm -hmm. about this. And she said, because when some big star then comes in, they can't very well, after, look, after I make them wait for at least five minutes, they can't, after seeing those eight Academy Awards, they, then they can't say, now look, Edith. <laughs> she had a great sense of humor. Bill Trevia was another great mm -hmm. one. He's the one who told me something I never would have known. <clears throat> During his years, it was called the Hayes Office, and they had rules on what you could and couldn't do with clothes. You couldn't show cleavage. And he said that was never a problem with Marilyn Monroe because her breasts were so far apart. And I see pictures of her, and he's so right. There's like one here and one here. <laughs> they didn't meet. So he could just design? He could, he could have the lowest neckline you can imagine, and there wouldn't be cleavage. Interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that either, but it make, does, when I think of her, it does make sense. With Edith Head and everyone, I, I don't know if you talked about this with her, but how much did she look at fashion? What was going on in fashion? Did that impact her work at all? Oh, I think so, yes. Yeah, she certainly kept up. She knew what was going on. She, when she applied for her first job, I should be able to tell you, it was, it was with a famous costume designer. She said, I never thought anything of it. I had a class, and I asked all my friends to give me sketches. 
So when she applied for the job, she showed all of their sketches <laughs> and hers, and whoever hired her said, I've never seen such diverse talent in one person. <laughs> she liked to tell that story about herself. It's a smart way of approaching it. I'm sure it looks quite different, all the different hands. Yeah, but, well, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> do you think we've done it? I think we have. Okay. Think, thank you so much. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Mary Lou Luther. We have many wonderful conversations coming up in the next few weeks with photographers, makeup artists, and fashion textile designers. All episode materials are available at ladyworld.tv and on our newsletter. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this, please share with others as I'd love to get these interviews out to more kindred souls.